Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Danny Cannell. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Uh, we've got some questions from the big old bag of mail that we are going to jump into. Reminder, if you ever want to submit a question for a future mailbag episode, you can do it by leaving us five stars. Leave a review. Say nice things. Offer a legitimate you know, criticism. Just make it five stars. Put in your question. We will uh, tackle it in a future mailbag episode. Before we get to that, um, the it is truly talking season, and it almost like took me back to to re- realizing and remembering that all we didn't get the appearances at the touchdown club and like the local, like checking in with all the different boosters and going up and, and giving the uh, the little pep talk that you've got and. Sometimes, depending on who the coach is, depending on what the comment is, it, it ends up getting picked up. Reporters might be there on scene, might turn it into a little bit of a story, which could then become a headline. Uh, Texas A&M coach Jimbo Fisher, according to reporters who were following him, were like, he was hitting multiple spots in like six and seven hour windows. I mean, it, it was all full go. Texas A&M, nine in one season, finished one spot outside the playoff. I mean, he is doing his thing, trying to charge up uh, all of those Texas A&M boosters, uh, all of the 12th men and women. So one of the quotes during his little pep talk included his confidence that he would be able to take down Alabama and Nick Saban. And so, you know, as he's doing this, this is the message that is 100% being delivered to an audience that wants to hear it. Probably got all the claps, you know, right up with him getting the boots on the day he was introduced. I am a boot guy, you know, like really being excited about the culture. So when he says, don't worry, you know, we're going to beat Alabama and Nick Saban, do you think that Jimbo Fisher, as Texas A&M's head coach, will have a win against Alabama coached by Nick Saban when both coaches are retired. Hold on a sec. You gave you gave the G-rated version. If you're driving <laughs> around with your kids, mute it for a second. This is what he said. We're going to beat his ass when he's there. Don't you worry. Like, that's what I could, like real fast. I could hear it. That's what he said. I love it. I have, I love it. Like I wish we had more coaches who said this not only at their own touchdown clubs, but at SEC media days, like, and he's saying it with a laugh, like this is smack talk at its best. And I guarantee you, if 
Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban are out playing golf together or they're out on the lake together, wherever these coaches with all these millions of dollars hang out in the offseason, I guarantee you Jimbo Fisher would tell Nick Saban, I'm going to get your ass one of these days. Like, it's just, it's smack talk at its best. And I think it's awesome. I love it. So now we can answer the question. I just wanted to get that out of my, like, I wish no, 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 that's who I, said this more. I, I like that. I mean, and listen, I hope that if they're having this game of golf, it's back in West Virginia, right? I mean, because it's like Clarksburg for Jimbo, Fairmont for Nick Saban. Like they've yes. always had that sort of like old West Virginia connection. I mean, you know, they're they're, they're probably dropping peanuts in the Coca-Cola. Oh, peanuts and Coca-Cola is a West Virginia delicacy. You know, like they, they probably are just like doing it all, living up the smack talk. But do you, you do think he'll have one? He'll have one win. He'll get his ass. Yeah. Yes. Yes. They'll get him once. That was a question mark. No period. Period. I mean, it's 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 a it's a compliment to what Nick Saban has built at Alabama, but I do think that Texas A&M is you know, Jimbo Fisher's done enough there where I I think the same question of him beating Alabama is kind of the same question of whether Texas A&M can take that next step. If the offense kind of opens it up and they get the right quarterback in there and they're able to, cause like you can't beat Alabama 20 to 17 anymore. You've got to score at least 42 points. And if Texas A&M gets to the point where it's going to be able to put up 40 points on a regular basis, week in and week out, then yeah, it's going to be able to get Alabama once. But I also agree with you, Danny, that we need coaches doing this more. Like what's like the worst thing that happens is, okay, you lose. And then somebody on Twitter, you know, like dunks on you. Who cares? Right. Exactly. Who cares? I, I think he'll get him. I think he'd get him this year. And that's not a knock against Alabama. It's football. I mean, Alabama was trailing to Georgia at halftime. Correct. I can't remember I if it was this trailing, past year, but it was, it was definitely close. They were down. Um, you know, the Florida game never felt like it was in jeopardy. But, yeah, I mean, there have been teams that have beaten Nick Saban. Uh, Kevin Sumlin beat Nick Saban, right? I mean, it's been done before. So I actually like his mindset of setting this as the standard. Like, it's one thing if you're Mark Stoops at Kentucky or Eli Drinkwitz at Missouri and they come out there saying, yeah, we want to get Bama. Like, then it becomes the meme of we want Bama signs. They're all over the country. And it's like, oh, really? You want that? But – He's in that echelon. Absolutely. Uh, he'll definitely beat him at some point. Um, you know, how long Nick Saban coaches probably right, comes into play. Yeah, you got to take you know, these things I, into consideration. But I think, I mean, if, if one of these quarterbacks, I mean, and I think it, I, from what we've seen, it doesn't appear to be, but maybe they're going against a great defense. Uh, you know, maybe that's why they've struggled in the spring. If one of them pops or in another year, they get a transfer. Maybe it's TJ Finley. I don't know. <laughs> we'll get to that in a minute. But, I mean, it does feel like they're really close. And I know the score isn't close. But their talent is getting a lot closer in the, you know, four- and five-star composite rankings. They're getting closer in talent. Jimbo, Texas A&M, Alabama games seem to have taken a familiar, uh, a familiar like, storyline where – it's almost always, I mean, obviously every game is close to start with, but it isn't until like either late second quarter or mid third quarter. It's like Bama hits the gas and Texas A&M can't keep up. No, if, if we just take all of the, the beginnings of these games, 
like, man, like Texas A&M's going blow for blow with them. Like I think the 2018 game in Tuscaloosa was one where it wasn't until, you know, a little bit about like late second quarter, maybe early third quarter, Bama was really able to run away and hide. But for the most part, they, the, when they get off the bus, they look every bit the part. And at the beginnings of these games, when they're just trading those, those first initial punches, they look every bit the part. They just need uh, they just need to be able to hang in there for for four quarters and then they'll be able to do it. Um, you mentioned great segue, Danny. LSU had the quarterback battle has narrowed. Miles Brennan and Max Johnson seem to be the front runners, and so we've got some transfer news coming out of Baton Rouge as TJ Finley, aka shout out to Emory Hunt, Big Ponchatoula. Big Ponchatoula. <laughs> Big old body, big old arm, Ponchatoula, Louisiana. Uh, he will be entering the transfer portal. Is we saw him in limit in it was a very difficult situation. And as we continue to learn more about sort of the way that things went at LSU in twenty twenty, you know, it, it almost gives me a, a little bit of a, a second thought at any of my takeaways from uh, from the LSU season and from the individual players that were on the team. Comes in. Uh, after Miles Brennan gets hurt, plays a little bit, ultimately ends up losing the starting job to Max Johnson by the end of the season. Do you see him as a value add quarterback at the Power Five level? Yeah, I think for the right program. I mean, right. it's it really depends on where he ends up because, like, he wasn't like a highly rated recruit out of high school. I think he was a high three star. But if you look at the list of schools who had offered him, clearly there are a lot of. You know, like Alabama offered him, Auburn offered him, Georgia offered him. There were a lot of big name schools that were interested in him. So I, I, I do think that he could still bring something. I think, I think the concern is that just his style of quarterbacking isn't really what's in vogue right now, because he's he's he reminds me a lot of a very young Ben Roethlisberger, both in stature and just what he's able to do with his arm, but. While he can move, he's not what you would call a mobile quarterback. So I don't know. I think it has to be the right fit. And I don't admit, obviously it wasn't working for him at LSU, but I don't think that doesn't mean that there's somewhere not, not a power five school he can end up at where he's not going to be a better fit for what they want to do on their offense where he can't play well because he does have a good arm and he does show some excellent touch on certain throws. And I think that there's a very high ceiling on him if he's able if you're able to develop him properly. I say, heck yeah, he's an Aluvad to the right program. I mean, he was a true freshman last year. Mm -hmm. And he came in and against, we'll be selective here because we're selling TJ Finley, against two SEC defenses. He completed roughly 70% of his passes, four touchdowns and one interception, um, you know, for almost 500 yards, over 500 yards. Granted, it was Arkansas at South Carolina, but as a true freshman to do that, and then he struggled. He came back to reality against Alabama and Texas A&M, who were two of the better defenses in the country. Auburn was a bad game. So he had a typical, very freshman-like year. But you saw flashes. You know, you saw somebody who's got a cannon. But I totally agree with Tom that he needs the right fit for him. And then I think it becomes interesting. All right, well, what are those fits? Like if you're TJ Finley and you're surveying the landscape or you're a coach and you're looking at like how many suitors are out there and there definitely are some, like, I think he reminds me, I think he'd be a Kyle Trask, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, if, if I was, if I was TJ Finley, I would be investigating Florida saying, all right, you know, what's out there. I think 
Texas would be interesting with Sark. I mean, Mac Jones wasn't the most mobile quarterback. He didn't have to run that much, but he was pure pocket. I think Mississippi State, you know, Mike Leach has won from the pocket before. So I think, and I, I mean, the school that I thought of instantly and has just had this wasteland of transfer quarterbacks that have been big and slow, except for Shea Patterson, was Michigan. Yeah. But it's kind of hard because if you're TJ Finley, do you want to go to Michigan with the lack of development you've seen at quarterback? So I think there's definitely going to be some suitors, and I think he'll be right there. And I think it was, I think it was smart of him to make this move now. I mean, it was a crowded I, quarterback room. I think I think that Texas call is an interesting call too, because who was Alabama's OC when they were recruiting TJ Finley? Hmm. Good point. Sark, yep. Little bit of a uh, little bit of positive news coming from the Clemson Tigers program coming out on uh, earlier this week as Justin Foster will be returning to the program. Now he had announced his intention to step away from football on February 24th following complications related to both asthma and COVID-19. But after uh, undergoing, he got his. Uh, COVID-19 vaccination. He has been undergoing treatment at Duke University, and the doctors were very positive about him being able to come back and compete at a college level within the next month or two. Uh, In 2019, he was an honorable mention, all ACC selection. Uh, In three years, he's got uh, 39 career games, 13 starts, 66 career tackles, seven sacks, 17 and a half tackles for loss. And so, like all of a sudden, um, now there's going to be uh, seven players on this roster for Clemson in 2021 that have started on the defensive line. Seven players that all have starts. Uh, five guys that have started at DN and two that have started at D tackle. Uh, Dabba Sweeney called him a great leader with great experience and a really talented football player. And so, you know, as he's going to continue to work back, this is something that's exciting for Foster because he thought his playing career was absolutely done. But because of uh, some health improvements that have happened over the last several weeks, he now adds an experienced and gifted piece to one of the best defenses, one of the two best, three best defenses in the entire country uh, as we're looking into it. So, I don't know if he's going to start, you know, and I hope that he's able to make a full recovery to have the kind of season that he wants. He graduated this December, so he's just got one year of eligibility left. Uh, excited for him on the as a person, and um, and I'm I'm curious, man. Like, do you what were uh, what were some of the takeaways other than because it's it's almost like because of the uniqueness of the situation and what we have seen at Clemson and in college football over the last year or so, it's uh, it's it's cool to be able to root for Foster to, to be able to get back to his playing career. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you nailed pretty much all of it on the head. It's just exciting that things have changed for him that he's able to return, whether or not he's going to be able to start. I don't know. I don't think it matters. I think it's good news for Clemson that you're adding to the depth. And I think it's great news for him that a kid who thought he was never going to be able to play football again because of the side effects and the long-term effects he was having after having COVID is now recovering and now thinks that he's going to be able to play and he's going to be able to get on the field. And I think that that's just huge because that's not how you want anybody's, you know, football career to end. So for him to be able to go out and, you know, end it on the field and then possibly maybe move on to the NFL, that's just absolutely amazing news. And I'm thrilled for him. Same thing. I mean, he said it perfectly. Great. And it's a player we'll be rooting for. Uh, Cause we've, you know, we've, we saw players opt out. We you know, some players opted out for NFL reasons. Some others opted out for COVID reasons. And this was one that was probably flying underneath the radar. 
and probably got lost and didn't get much of attention because you had bigger names like a Jamar Chase. Oh, he opted out. Then he becomes a top five pick. So you kind of get forgotten about. I'm sure he felt some of that. And he was retiring thinking, man, I may never play football again. And for him to be able to do that. And it sounds like he's got a great perspective on life. Even when he said he was totally okay, you know, he was at peace with not playing, got his degree. It sounds like he's got his priorities straight. And for Clemson, add some depth along an already pretty good defensive line. So uh, hopefully he'll have a, a, a great year and we can watch him play and it'll be awesome. If they really are running like seven deep with players who could go start pretty much anywhere else in, in the ACC, then they're going to do that Clemson thing where they cycle bodies in. I mean, just mm-hmm. the, the snap counts at the end of the season for Clemson's defense is always ridiculous when they are at their best, when they are healthy, and when they have the luxury of being able to do it. It, it makes it so that when Dexter Lawrence gets a little like nagging injury, they just shut him down for three games because they can afford to, because they trust the players that are behind them to be able to come in and be able to maintain that same level of competitiveness. And it certainly seems like Justin Foster is going to be another one of those trustworthy pieces so that at the end of the season, when we're talking about game 13, game 14, game 15, the ones where championships are decided, Clemson, the coaching staff that has become as good as anybody else in the entire country at managing this stuff, uh, they this is just another advantage for them, for sure. Little known fact, the reason Brent Venables has a get-back coach is because he gets so excited watching his own defensive lineman rotate in that he wants to rotate in himself. That's true. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of people don't talk about that. Hey, Cover 3 listeners, Chip here, and I wanted to let you know about what's on CBS Sports HQ this week. As always, CBS Sports HQ is your home to start your sports news day with live updates kicking off each morning at 8 a.m. Eastern. I was watching Avery Johnson on there, weighing in on the NBA playoff push. Great stuff from Avery. And HQ is always your home ahead of the evening's action with live picks from the best analysts and cappers in the sports world each day at 6 p.m. Eastern time. You might be thinking that it's a quiet time in the sports with the NFL draft over, but you would be wrong. It's a Champions League week on HQ. In fact, the second leg of the semis just happened. We've got an all-England Champions League final. Manchester City and Chelsea, all the analysis that you could want for. It's on CBS Sports HQ. That's wall-to-wall coverage, uh, latest news, analysis, picks and lots of picks uh, all around all of the action that we are looking at on CBS Sports HQ. So check out HQ on your computer at cbsports.com or via the CBS Sports app on your mobile phone or TV. It's always free and it's always on. It's CBS Sports HQ. Coming up on the other side, we open up the big old bag of mail with Still a little bit of an NFL draft flair and more next. It was a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. This first question comes from Duke. Can you guys name some players that were projected as high draft picks, then came back to college and fell in the draft? 
Matt Barkley comes to mind. I mean, Matt Barkley is a very good example of one. Um, no, it's hard because like most of the top draft picks go. They don't really come back, but I, I think... Uh, so, I mean, Marvin Wilson, though, like we talked about it on the yeah, podcast, this was year, that the first year there's a few, but that's like COVID kind of like, was that a first round grade was the other one. I mean, the other interesting, uh, like he has not been drafted yet, but unless he like blows it out of the water this season, like if Brock Purdy had left after 2019, does he end up going higher than he does after playing the 2020 season? Jamie Newman obviously is a, another one where if he had just gone pro after 2019 does he end up getting picked a little bit higher instead of going absolutely undrafted those were those are definitely some of the ones that uh that came oh teddy bridgewater like wasn't well uh actually let me i don't know if he was draft eligible teddy was a first round pick wasn't he yeah he was a 16th 18th somewhere in the teens in the first round but we were talking about him like a potential overall number one pick at the beginning of that college football season though he might not have been uh draft eligible i i think it you can you could find a bunch of them you'd have to dig a little bit so i was just looking because you know we're doing the way too early mock draft for next season and i feel bad and then when i was looking at this this might be a different conversation because these, some of these players could not have left anyway they could have opted out i guess some of them did but from a year ago, way too early mock drafts, some names I saw that were on both, you know, several different mock drafts. Jamie Newman was one. Although I don't know, I think he needed one more year at Georgia. I think it hurt him by opting out and not playing. But I do wonder how he would have done in a draft lead-up process. Um, Tyler Shelvin, Marvin Wilson were two defensive tackles that both popped up on that list. Uh, Chuba Hubbard, although he could not have left, right? He could have opted out and maybe uh, been a higher pick than he was. Um, so I think, but I think there's I think there are a bunch of guys that decide to go back that go lower than anticipated because the off season now there's. Well, it's I mean, like, I what think, was anticipated, right? Right. Then, then that ended up being the problem is yeah. that some of these guys buy into the anticipated mock drafts, as opposed to listening to the official grades mm-hmm. from the, who, who puts those out? The NFL is it? uh, is there like a committee that does those for them? When they, they, yeah, it's something related to the NFL. They've got like a process that they let the prospects go through. Right. Um, because I think if you're a first round projected from the official crew that we're talking about here with Tom was just addressing, I think you're probably crazy to go back. But you can load up on insurance. You can do all those things. And they do have loss of value insurance now where if you get drafted lower. But – I still think you're, I think you have to make a business decision, which is unfortunate, but. Yeah. And I think it's going to happen at running back a lot too, but I think that's, I feel like like this, I feel like the question is asked in the vein of like, it was a mistake to go back because you ruined your draft stock. Whereas I think that with a lot of running backs, it's become a situation where running backs just aren't as valuable. Mm. So it's like your personal draft stock didn't crater as much as, the NFL teams and how they view you cratered. And that would be right. Chuba Hubbard. Yeah. Like Chuba Hubbard's a good player, but he fell to the late fourth round. Right. And maybe thought he could have gone second round, but mm-hmm. uh doesn't doesn't always play out that way. All right. Thank you, Duke. 
this next question. Great work as always. The interesting conversations, knowledge and chemistry. The whole crew makes the show stand out. Look forward to all the interesting topics the rest of the offseason as we seem destined for a normal 2021 season. Question. Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian have had two very interesting careers dating back to their time together at USC. They forever seem intertwined because of their time together during the UNC run, USC run of the mid-2000s. In the last 15 years, who has had the bigger impact, but also what can we learn from their careers? It's sweet to fail up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to say Lane's had the bigger impact, right? Just based on, like, Sark was at Washington, and then he went to USC, and obviously he went to Alabama, and now he's at Texas. I feel like Sark's impact is still to come. Hmm. I think that Lane, I mean, look. Just what he's left behind in his way. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Where Lane leaves, like, there's been an impact. Like, when a meteor hits the moon, it might not be there anymore, but you can see the impact that it had on the surface of the moon. I think Lane Kiffin has a similar situation where at Tennessee, you know what impact he left. At USC, you know the impact he left. You know, and now he's taking it over at Ole Miss. So I, I think Lane has more of an impact as far as being a college football character. I think that you can argue he's had more success as a head coach than Sark has to this point. So I'm going to go lane, but I think that as far as trying to handicap who has the most impact in the future, I think that it's not a knock on lane, but he's at Ole Miss. I think Sark at a school like Texas, that gives him a much broader avenue to have a huge impact. I think it's pretty easy at this point that I think it's lane. Um, like for Sark, if you went with the, well, you know, he won a national championship at Bama. I mean, if he wasn't there, they probably still. Right. I, I mean, no, I'll, I'll say that Sark built on what Lane did because I do think the offense, because I was. But who started that transition? Lane. Right. Lane's offenses. And by the way, they each won one national championship as a Bama OC. Yep. So um, Lane was the OC. Uh, but then remember Nick told him to go ahead and, uh, pack it up, go to Boca mm -hmm. before the title game. And yeah. then Sark got promoted to interim OC, uh, and ended up not getting the job after that. So he's interim OC for the 2016 loss to, uh, Clemson while Lane was the OC for the 2015 win against Clemson. Sark goes, does two years uh, with the Atlanta Falcons, comes back for the 2019 season. Obviously, they don't win the SEC 2020. They win the national championship. So both Lane and Sark on the Alabama Nick Saban national title scoreboard won a piece. But I do think that the success that Lane Kiffin has had as a head coach multiple times over, that does probably give him a little edge on the scoreboard. But in terms of the impact specifically at Alabama, I think Sark did a really good job of continuing that process of opening totally. things up and, and really leading Alabama into a more up-tempo, a more uh, option-friendly type offense. Totally. But who started it? I think, he, you know, he was the originator was Lane Kiffin. And I, it was interesting because I was thinking, you know, Lane left Tennessee in such a awake. It was like this, you know, the, but and there was this ripple effect, but Sark left USC, you know, with the way his exit was. 
Man, I guess uh, it's 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 interesting. It's a great question. So Sark has Lane. more potential because if he if he does it at Texas, he's got a better spot. Yeah, he isn't a, but like, what if Lane pulls off the unthinkable and shocks the world? And and even if they go eight and four, but they beat Alabama or they beat you know somebody that's a surprise, you may maybe we don't because I don't know. I, I guess it would be like, what is the bigger? Clearly, if Lane does more at Ole Miss, that's a way bigger deal. But then what's doing more Sark at Ole does, Miss? Like, I, I think if Sark wins a Big 12 title at Texas, he wins this debate. Oh, but what if Lane won an, um, an SEC championship at Ole Miss? It's way harder to do at Ole yeah. Miss than it is at Texas. But I think we all are in agreement that the more likely scenario because of talent is Sark at Texas. So, yeah, I would, I would agree that Sark probably from here. Although I wouldn't can't, uh, count Lane out to – to keep ruffling some feathers and still make some waves. I mean, once Lane replaces Saban at Alabama, then it's game on. Exactly. Please. This might be a debate we'll be having for years to come. Please. Oh, man. No way. But maybe. I don't know. All right. Let's Mary Flipmas. Here's Lane Kiffin going to, uh, to Alabama. All right. Here we go. This one is from... Uh, Frank, awesome show, gents. Now that the draft is over, what players do you think were hurt and helped the most by the COVID-shortened season? I, it's hard to really know. I, it's we mentioned Chuba Hubbard. I think he was hurt by just a strange twenty twenty season. I think. Uh, I think Devonte Smith. Like if, like if I, I helped. Yeah, I sort of look at this as like. I don't know, in May and June, or maybe in June of uh, May, we were having phone calls like, okay, so if there's no college football season, what's the Cover 3 podcast going to do? You know, we were having phone calls with our editors, like, all right, what other sports could you cover? Just in case there's no (laughs) college football. Like, there was a, I I even took it all the way back to, okay, a season was played, um, who you know what was the what was the benefit from it who ended up uh you know maybe being a little bit hurt by it like the i think that obviously opting out did not matter for Jamar Chase it did not matter for Penny Sewell uh it did not seem to matter for Micah Parsons but uh i do think that not playing might have uh taken away an opportunity for and i don't want to like knock his decision because there was a lot that went into it but can Gainwell had been the leader of the rushing leader in the American athletic conference, then we might've been looking at him just a little bit differently. If, you know, Jamie Newman had played at Georgia, you know, then we might've been talking about him very differently. The, the players that were hurt, I think were mostly hurt in the big 10 and the PAC 12 because of the delayed and rushed season, because it led to um, less preparation. It led to very rocky performance. And because of the way those protocols were set up with no bye weeks, you know, you'd be out there and you might be playing with a position group that has two new faces that you hadn't even prepared for. And maybe you didn't even know that that was going to be your group. So in general, as a blanket thing, I think that the players that were hurt the most um, in terms of the NFL draft were the ones who were in the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and were being judged for their pro potential under very, very difficult circumstances in terms of preparation and execution. And to go along with that kind of thinking, like, I mean, the Big Ten, two of the players who opted out for them last year were taken in the top 13 because you mentioned Micah Parsons, but Rashawn Slater opted out in oh, yeah. the 2020 season too, and he was taken at number 13 by the Chargers. I, I think a player that was really helped 
Mac Jones. Yeah, yes, there we go. Like, if if there's no college football, Mac Jones ain't going uh, number 15. Number 15, yeah. He's not a Patriot right now. And, you know, you had, had people like Chip Patterson trying to give the man's job away at this time last spring. So I, I think he was helped. Uh, a player who might have been helped, too, was the guy taken after Mac Jones. Zavin Collins. Yep, mm, 100%. Not only did he play the season, it's just he also had like he was a good player going into 2020. And I think he's a draft pick. I don't know if he's a first round draft pick without the season that he did have, particularly with just like the plays he was able to make it seemingly every single time Tulsa needed a play made. So, yeah, there were a lot of players that were helped. There were some that were hurt. I think Jamie Newman was the biggest mistake of all of them deciding not to play. Um, and who knows? I mean, he might have played bad at Georgia and it might have worked out the same, but I think he would have been able to. I think he would have been, I think he made a mistake. Zach Wilson. I mean, helped. look at his season. I mean, he would have not been mentioned this past year. I don't even know if he would have been drafted. Justin Fields. I said this on the pod before. I didn't want to say it, but I think he got hurt by playing. I think he might've gone three or two if he had not played this season. And all we had was that really close to perfect season. Uh, I thought Gregory Russo from Miami hurt his draft stock. I was looking at some of these again, way too early from, the, a year ago, and he was top five by a lot of people. And if he would have had another year like he had in 2019, I think he would have been maybe a top 10 pick. And Jalen Phillips might not have been like, so I think Jalen Phillips had helped tremendously at Miami in the absence of Gregory Russo. And I think it hurt Russo. Uh, I would have had Zayvon Collins on my uh, list of players that I think it really uh, helped by getting this season. Mac Jones is a great call. Um, what about Kyle Pitts? I thought Kyle Pitts was, I don't, I did not see his name a lot and I thought he had an outstanding season. He probably still would have been a first rounder, but I don't know if you would, I mean, he was the highest 10 tight end ever taken, right? Well, I had him in the top 10 in my mock last spring before. Yeah. So I I think Kyle Pitts was fine. I, uh, another name. Let's see. Uh, interesting. Going back to the big 10, because this is like a player that was half in half out. Considering what his stock was after last season, where was Rondale Moore drafted if he had just opted out of 2020 entirely like he originally planned to and then kind of came back and then it was kind of like, there was like, well, why isn't he playing? Oh, he got hurt. Because it's like there might be less, fewer questions about his durability had he not come back to play. If he had just decided he was going to go pro after his freshman season. I mean, mm-hmm. just like, hey, I'm just going to spend a couple years training and then get drafted. And if he had just gotten just gone off that freshman season, then, uh, then a hundred percent on the Zayvon Collins note, I was thinking about this, having to, to write a little blurb for him. It, and I didn't, I didn't say this cause I didn't want to be demeaning. I want to be able to give some context and sometimes the, it, it doesn't always work. It, writing's act, interesting for a writer. It's not my best form of communication. Um, watching him at times was like watching high school football where there was just one player who was better than everyone else. Right. Where you just like see the one guy's like, okay, he's going to, they really need a sack. That guy's going to go get the sack. They really need a fumble. That guy's going to go punch it out and recover it. Oh, they need an interception. Oh, they need a pick six in overtime for walk-off touchdown to win the game. Yeah. Zayvon Collins is going to be the one to go do that. Just like the, the absolute freak. And, and I remember it oftentimes it was somebody who wasn't even going to like play college football necessarily it was like the basketball player who just happened to be one of the best athletes in the school who's just going out there making things happen watching Zaven Collins in some of those uh, AAC games kind of took me back to that in terms of his separation from just everybody else that's on the field 
You, you want to know another quarterback who has helped greatly? Who went from likely undrafted free agent to fourth-round draft pick? What's that? Ian Book. Yeah. Oh, great season for Ian Book. Great season. I don't think if, if you take Ian Book after 2019, I don't think Ian Book's being drafted. Mm. Well, speaking of Kyle all... Trask, too, is another one. Yeah. Yeah. Helped me. I, I never would have guessed he would have been a, a you know second-round pick. The other one, Sean Wade, was on a bunch of mock drafts a year ago, first-round pick. Should have opted out. Yeah. Should have opted out. Yeah, yep. that's... I And I'm trying to think, like, how much of that do I put on the, like, start, stop, canceled, not canceled? You know, you're coming right. back, and uh, he had to move positions a little bit. Like, that was... Uh, a lot got put on his plate and he didn't have a lot of time to be able to, to break it all down. Ohio state was dealing with, I mean, there was one point, I think it was the Michigan state game. Ohio state had 23 players out. Now they won and they won handily. So it kind of got like looked past it, but I just think about assignments and about your position groups and about, you know, trying to handle all of that. It was a, it was a real challenge for, uh, for Sean Wade last year. And I think it hurt him in the NFL draft. Also getting cooked in the playoff hurt him in the NFL draft. Here's another player that got helped out by 2020 season. Second to last player picked in the draft. Wide receiver, BYU, Dax Milne. Yeah. <laughs> All that Zach Wilson tape got drafted. All BYU got helped by a schedule that included no Pac-12 or Mountain West opponents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though they did get San Diego State at the very end before you hop in and get mad at me for that one. Uh, <laughs> all right. This next question comes from Ryan. Thanks for doing my question last week, guys. I'm actually a Clemson alum, so that was right on the money. Building off my question from last week, if you were building a college football team money ball style, what positions and or players would you focus heavily on? With top teams continuing to rack up the best commits, what would a mid-tier power five or top-tier group of five need to do to fight with the big dogs and pull off a Cinderella story? I think this possibly could become more likely with the new transfer rules in place, and it will be interesting to see what positions get valued the most in the new system. I mean, quarterback's the easy answer, right? Yeah, this is kind of already happening, though. Like, because it's it would be really hard if you mean a money ball kind of system in the same sense of like what the, Ath- the Oakland athletics did in the book money ball, where they looked for a specific statistical trait, like on base percentage and saw that that correlated well to performance and for offense. I don't think you could do that recruiting wise because the difference in levels of high school football are just so different in the stats and the offenses and the way teams play, you can't really find like a correlation between the specific stats. So what we've seen programs do is traits like size, length, speed, all that kind of stuff where they're maybe you're not like a five-star prospect because you're not a perfect prospect, but they do look for specific things that fit in their system and fit in their style that they know that they can mold and develop. I mean, that's part of what Matt Rule was doing at Baylor before he left for the Carolina Panthers. It's part of what a lot of coaches have begun doing with their recruiting departments for their schools. So I think, I don't think there's one specific area to look for. I think it depends on what, where you are, what you have to recruit around you, you'd have to look. So it's kind of, it's hard to pin it down to one specific thing. Personally, me depends on the position. If I'm looking for a defensive back, obviously I care about speed because you got to be able to cover. And a part of that is speed, but length is a huge thing for me in a cornerback. I don't care if you're six, two, if you've got long arms, like that helps make up for it. So it's, it's stuff like that. 
Um, I was thinking about, so is this along the lines of the triple option conversation? Like if, if there's an edge, an analytical edge, and you want to do something different, or do you go for it on fourth down every time? Or do you go for two every time? Like that's, I think it's hard. And I know analytics are creeping more into the sport of football in general, but I think Tom nailed, it's really hard to find edges in the, in the high school ranks coming out. I would probably, if I was at a school, I'd want a quarterback who was incredibly athletic, you know, try to find a quarterback who could run around and make plays. If you, if you're playing against better competition where your offensive line can't handle their rush, I'd want a quarterback who could neutralize that somewhat. You know, maybe you do a lot of RPO game, like a, a Gus Malzahn style system with a lot of shiftiness and trickery. And like, that's where mine goes. My mind goes when you start saying, how do we as a mid-tier group of five team catch up? That's where I think you've got to get creative and outside the box. I don't know if there's value necessarily. And the, run you, the risk you run, if you find, like if you do a really great job scouting and you find some two stars I don't even know if there are two stars, but you know, you find some guys under recruited and you'd find these diamonds in the rough. Guess what's going to happen. They're transferring out all out. Mm -hmm. You know? So I'd almost rather go with the mindset of us against the world, all in on the team. Let's come up with this philosophy that helps us beat the odds. Because if you get the talent, it's probably leaving, unfortunately. So my mad scientist approach, cross train, everyone okay i'm recruiting offensive linemen and you're all playing defensive line i'm recruiting defensive linemen and you're all flipping to the offensive side all you wide receivers that are like two stars i'm going to turn you into elite defensive backs and defensive backs you're coming on over to the offensive side of the ball i want everybody to be cross-trained on not just up and down the line but on both sides of the ball All we're doing is we're getting athletes. I believe so much in my teaching ability that I'm only looking for body style and uh, athletic traits. And then we'll just figure out, shake it up and pour it out on the table, move the pieces around and figure it out. I will say, and I was listening to, on a more serious note, I think that as fast as the ball is coming out of the quarterback's hands right now, I think the days of having a smaller defensive line with like stunts and twists that's just time wasted. You're just not mm-hmm. going to be able to get to the quarterback. And so I, I want a big nose tackle. I just want up like a, a space eater. And, and there are not that many human beings that have the like size, space, physicality to be able to go and play like a true nose tackle or even like interior defensive tackle and accomplish some of those goals. But I was listening to a coach talk about the advantage of having Uh, he got somebody from the transfer portal who can play that role. And he said a year ago, we were a little bit smaller. So we had to get, do a lot of twists, you know, had had to mix things up and get creative. Not only does it take longer to get to the quarterback, but it messes with the vision of your linebackers and safeties. And so if you can play a little bit more downhill from the defensive position, thanks to having that big interior presence, Again, like going back to the idea that the ball's coming out quicker than ever. So sometimes some of these slow developing exotic pass rushes, they're just, they're not going to be as successful. So as tough as it is to get like an actual money ball searching the transfer portal, I'm, I'm looking for a 325 pound guy who can just take up a lot of space and be able to play that anchor role for me. See, I'm going the opposite direction. You want to go skinny? Not so much skinny, like he could beat 325 pounds, but what's more important to me than eating space is can you penetrate? 
Cause like that way I don't have to stunt. If I've got def- defensive tackles who can get in there and get into the backfield on their own, I don't need to stunt. Like then I've got defensive ends who can do it. I've got four guys up front who can beat their man. That's what I want. Fair guys. We got something coming up really exciting for you next week. It is a pew, 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 crossover episode. That's right. Pick six, cover three, getting together, clashing, in the Battle Dome, talking about everyone's favorite topic this time of year, the NFL Draft. Ryan Wilson, Will Brinson, Tom Fernelli, Chip Patterson. We are going to be discussing both uh, what we saw from this past NFL Draft and turning the page to look to 2022. That is coming up next week. It'll be dropping in your feeds on Monday. So be sure to check out the exclusive Cover 3, Pick 6 crossover episode It's coming up. Subscribe to it wherever you find this podcast. All right. One last question from Jake. Hey, y'all. Longtime listener. Love the pod. Keep it going. I appreciate the love for Bronco at UVA. Uh, Two questions. First one was Super League talk in Europe. What would a CFP Super League look like? Kind of talked about that just a little bit. Uh, Number two, I'm currently a Baylor student. What is the realistic ceiling for Baylor as a program? Could they ever get back to the level during the Art Bryles era? We have a Heisman and two relatively recent Big 12 championships, but I'm worried we may be stuck being mediocre because our recruiting hasn't been able to reach the next level. The people here want to win badly and will spend the money, but I don't know if the talent we can get will be enough. Thanks so much. Y'all are a great listen. I think your ceiling is dependent on the rest of the conference and what's happening. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that <clears throat> Baylor's best years, obviously they part of it was art browse and bringing in a new system that wasn't as prevalent as it is today, whereas now everybody's kind of running that same kind of stretch it out to the hash marks to the sidelines and stretch out the defense. But it was also correlating at the same time where Texas was going through probably a very rough patch. And there was kind of a vacuum at the top that both Baylor and TCU kind of crept into. And then Oklahoma wasn't really firing on all the cylinders that it is now, which kind of is what led to Bob Stoops stepping aside and letting Lincoln Riley taking it over. So now that Oklahoma's firing on all cylinders, if Steve Sarkeesian gets Texas to what Texas can be, I think Baylor's ceiling is probably third best team in the conference if things get rolling. It can be Iowa State. It could be Oklahoma State. I don't know if it's realistic to think that Baylor has the kind of attraction to talent and recruits that it can be Oklahoma and Texas based on all their history. I think Iowa State's probably a good template for them to look at. Um TCU is a good time. I mean, I think like I they, think Iowa State was kind of where they were going under Matt Rule. Right. I agree. Um, I wonder, there have been some coaches that have hinted to me that while Art Bryles was there, and this was before the scandal, that they took on a lot of players that were risky, right? Character issues, academic flaws, whatever it was, red flags. I wonder if now they've tightened it up and that hurts them. It hurts their talent pool, you know, and that's, and that's a good thing. I think, you know, we can all agree like, Hey, it's better that they've cleaned things up and don't have uh, that, alleged uh, sexual assault. Uh, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. That, that we can all agree is a Suspects. good thing. Um, but they had a lot of good players that were 
you know, that had issues. And I don't know if they can recruit against Oklahoma and Texas. And it is a talent acquisition business. I say that all the time. I get sick of saying it. But that's where I think like they can be, it's kind of Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Texas, and then they could be right up there in that next tier. And like Tom said, if Texas, if Oklahoma miss on a quarterback, you know, somebody leaves, if Lincoln Riley headed off the NFL and they were in a transition, uh, you know, something happens, then if they're primed at the right time, they can jump on it. But I think nine and 10 wins, you know, every few years is a reasonable expectation for Baylor. And I think they could be back there fairly soon. I think you can, you're a reasonable expectation or a reasonable goal from a fan perspective is to cycle up every three to four years. Because one of the things that was unique about the Matt Rule team that made it to the Big 12 title game is it was loaded with juniors and seniors and loaded with juniors and seniors who had played a lot and played a lot together. You know, they, they were the, like, one win, seven wins, ten win. You know, they had really been able to all come up together. And so it'll take maybe not a good recruiting class in the context of, like, a bunch of four stars or, you know, a couple of five stars, but a good recruiting class in terms of just a good fit and a good group that can all develop together. And to your point about Art Bryles and the system, Art Bryles system was so successful that Bob Stoops hired Lincoln Riley. 2014, <laughs> you know, the year that like Baylor and TCU are, are co-champions, uh, Oklahoma went five and four in the Big 12 and finished fourth place in the standings. It was the lowest finish in the Big 12 of Bob Stoops' career, and he went and hired Lincoln Riley, and the rest is history. He's like, wait, what is this? We need to do this. We The belldozer ain't working anymore. We got to do something. What was the questioner's name? Uh, Jake, I believe. Jake. If you're at Baylor, that means you're a youngin, means you're a whippersnapper. You probably don't really remember what Baylor was before Art Bryles got there. So <laughs> it was pretty bad. Like if I think if we're talking about like a seven and six, eight and five kind of program that cycles up to nine, ten wins, you're in a lot better shape than you were twenty years ago. One hundred percent. That's Tom Fernelli. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow him at Danny Cannell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Remember, Monday, pick six, cover three, crossover. Get it wherever you get your podcast. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you.